head on downstairs. The rest of you, please turn with me in your Bibles to John 17, verses 6 through 19. John 17, verses 6 through 19. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is the word of the Lord. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is my favorite passage in all of the Bible. No other chapter speaks to me as much as John 17 does. And I'm honored to preach my last sermon in this text. In this text we see the heart of Jesus for his people. This passage is commonly known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So if you're taking notes this morning, the thesis or the sermon idea this morning is this. Jesus, our high priest, prays for us to be secure in God, protected and sanctified. Jesus, our high priest, prays for us to be secure in God, protected, and sanctified. And Jesus gives insight into this truth in three ways. And so let's look at that this morning. Number one, our high priest prays for us to be kept by God. Our high priest prays for us to be kept by God. Verses 6 through 12. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 
Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, so let's walk through this passage, beginning in verse 6. Jesus says that he has manifested your name, or he's manifested the Lord's name. So Jesus has revealed the beauty of God's perfection to his disciples. In the Old Testament, we see that uh, in the Old Testament temple that God put his name there. In Deuteronomy 12.5, if you're taking notes, there's a reference to that. And so here Jesus has shown them the Father's glory. Now, Jesus knows the Father's glory because he has been with him for all of eternity. We see that Jesus talks about this in Hebrews, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 1, that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, that to see Jesus is to see who the Father is. And Jesus talks about this in in, uh, chapter 14 of John, that he says to see him is to see the Father. So Jesus has manifested, has revealed the glory of God, who God is to his disciples. And Jesus says, yours they were and you gave them to me. So everything and everyone belongs to God by means of creation. That he is the creator God, that he has made all things. But however here what Jesus is saying is that God has chosen them to be his own. These disciples, that God has chosen them to belong to Christ. God has given these disciples as the elect. And and the Father promised to reward the Son with the people. And the Son has been committed to redeem His people through His perfect obedience and through His death. Therefore, because of all that Christ has done and that He will do at the cross in just a few hours, He can say that that they have kept your word. They have kept the word through Christ, through his perfect obedience. And then in in verse 8, Jesus says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know, know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So the words you gave me. So Jesus' words were not his own, but they were given to him by God. So the Son only says what the Father has told Him to say. So if we want to hear from the Father, we listen to the words of Jesus. The disciples may not have always understood what Jesus was saying. We see that throughout the Gospels. But they accept it as coming from the very mouth 
of God. And then we know that after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes and they have full understanding of what Jesus was saying. The disciples, through Jesus' words and life, have come to believe that He is the Christ who has come from God. We see this with Peter's great confession, right? Jesus says, who do the crowd say I am? And they go through that. And he says, but who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now in verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. God has a common love for all of creation. God has a common love for all of his people. However, here Jesus prays specifically for his disciples and his church. Jesus' work of redemption, it has a particular reference to his people, to his chosen ones, that Jesus died for the church. These are the ones whom the Father has given to him. We see this in John 10, 27-29. You can make note of that. That these are the ones that belong to the Father. Christ dies for the church, and he will not lose any of them. His death is perfect. It is sufficient to save his people. And then in verse 11, Jesus asks the Father to keep them in your name. Now, it seems that this, that this phrase here kind of has a dual meaning to it. It's keep them by the power of your name, literally. And so this means God, by the force and might of your name and all that you have done, protect these disciples. But I think in this, Jesus is also asking the Father to keep them loyal to him, to keep them faithful to him. On our own, we are not able to do that. And so that is why Jesus prays for us that the Father would keep us faithful to him. And for what purpose? That they may be one, even as we are one. So there is perfect unity in the Trinity. This is what that does not mean. It does not mean that there is just this one singular being that we believe that God exists in a trinity, that, he is, that God has revealed himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are one. Jesus here is talking about unity, that the triune God is in perfect unity and agreement. And so they are always in step with one another, and then this is the pattern of unity that God desires for his people. We are united to each other through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. We're to have unity in our purpose and mission as the church of God. And our unity and purpose, it should shape us and should be observable in the visible church. It should be clear when people walk in here that this is a church, that this is a people who are in unity like like the Trinity is in unity. For what purpose must we be in unity? Well, first, so that the world may believe that Jesus is the Christ. We'll see that next week in verse 21. And then secondly, to know that the Father has sent Jesus. Our unity is to be there so that people believe in Jesus and that the, so that they know that he comes from the Father. In verse 12, Jesus says, I have kept them in your name. So Jesus protected them, (coughs) excuse me, and kept them safe from the world. 
as He said that He would do in John 6. So Jesus is faithful to His promises. He's faithful to keep us in Himself. He says that He lost none except the Son of Destruction. Now, this is a reference to Judas by pointing to his destiny of eternal damnation and suffering. Judas's betrayal of Jesus, it wasn't a failure on the Lord's part to keep each of his disciples, but rather it was foreordained in Scripture. We see this in Psalm 41.9. It says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So we know this because we see that what happens? Jesus takes the bread and dips it in the oil and gives it to Judas and he eats. And then the scripture says that Judas goes out into darkness. And so this is a prophecy of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. If we are God's chosen people, that He has set His love on us in the death of Christ, then we can be sure that God is keeping us. If His death is sufficient to save, then His death is sufficient to keep us. God's desire is for Jesus to have a people for Himself. Therefore, those in Christ, they cannot be lost. Now, this isn't a license to sin. Because Jesus' death is sufficient for me. I can't be lost. I'm going to go out and live like hell. No. It's not a license to sin. Romans 6.1, Paul says, Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid, is what he says. But we demonstrate that we are in Christ as we seek to obey his word. That as we seek to live in obedience to Christ, we demonstrate our trust and the salvation that we have experienced in him. Being kept by God means that Jesus, our high priest, prays specifically for our continued faithfulness. Again, in verse 9, what did he say? I am praying for them. That Jesus is praying for his disciples. Why does he pray for our faithfulness? It's because he will not lose a single one of us. Because he knows how tempted we are to stray. And so he prays for our continued faithfulness. But our faithfulness isn't dependent on us. It's not dependent on us. Jesus' prayer is all about what he has done and what he will do. Our salvation, our faithfulness is dependent on him, not on you, not on your good works. He prays for our faithfulness, yet it is through his faithfulness that we remain faithful. We are faithful because Jesus is faithful to his promises. Jesus is faithful to the Father. Jesus was faithful to his mission. And therefore, we can be faithful in Christ's faithfulness. Jesus' desire for his church is that they would be one, even as he and the Father are one. So what does that mean? It means that we seek the glory and honor of Christ in the church above all things. That this is what drives us. This is what we care about. This is what we must be about. Is the glory of Christ in all things. It means that we must fight hard to be in step with one another and not give place to Satan. 
So right now, with everything that's going on in this body, Satan wants nothing more than to divide you. And as a local expression of Christ's body, we must desire that Jesus be glorified more than whatever it is that you desire for this church. You have to desire the glory of Christ above whatever you want for rolling fields. You must desire Christ and his glory over whatever it is that you think should happen here. So what does this mean for our lives? Well, first, believers are secure forever because they are held by Christ and by God. You are secure forever. Your salvation is secure forever because you're held by Christ and you're held by God. John 10, 28 through 29, (laughs) Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what does this mean? It means that you are doubly held. You are held by the Son and you are held by the Father. You don't have a hold of God. God has a hold of you. And He is holding you, the Father and the Son. And Jesus says, no one will pluck them out of my hand. And then the Father is greater than all and no one will pluck them out of His hand. We're doubly held by God. Your endurance to the end, it's not based on you, but it's based on Jesus. So rest in this truth that he will not lose one. That Jesus' salvation is greater than your sin. Jesus' salvation is greater than anything that you can throw at him. Second, there's nothing in us that keeps us united to God. It's by the power of His great name that we're united to Him. Our unity as a body is not dependent on anything that we do, but it's dependent on Jesus. Even as you move forward as a body, you must pray and ask the Lord to keep you united as one body with one purpose, to glorify God and to make His glory known. That's why the church exists. The church exists for the glory of God and to make that glory known. Last application for number one. Look, life can throw the fury of hell at us. The world can break and it can crack. And yet God still keeps us by his great name and power. Simply his name and his word sustains us And this is nothing for him. It is nothing for him to sustain you. His ability to to sustain you, it's not dependent on your situation or the amount of faith or spiritual vitality that you have at any given moment. It's dependent on Jesus' faithfulness. And Jesus is always faithful. Jesus is faithful whether I doubt His goodness or not. He is faithful whether my life is filled with faith or whether I am faithless and empty. He is always faithful. Rest in that truth. It doesn't matter whether your life is one of holiness and vitality or whether you're broken and busted and you have nothing to give. Jesus is faithful to you.
So secondly, how does Jesus pray for us in light of the world that we live in? Number two, our high priest prays for our protection. Verses 13 through 16. Our high priest prays for our protection. Jesus says in verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay. Now in verse 13, Jesus is praying that the disciples may be kept safe. He's praying that they may be preserved and that they may remain in the Father's love, obedient to him, and in complete allegiance to the word that Jesus has taught them. Jesus' desire is that their joy in life would be found in him as they live in absolute obedience to him. And then in verse 14, Jesus has given them his teachings, or your word, as Jesus calls it. The new birth that they've experienced, it's an affront to the ways of the world. The disciples are no longer of the world. They've been called out of darkness by the powerful word of the Son, and they've been brought into his glorious light. Therefore, the world hates them and wants nothing more than to destroy them. Everything that they are is disgusting to the world. Jesus' prayer is that the Father would protect them from the world. We know that this will happen. Why? Because Jesus will not lose a single one. Now, verse 15 and 16, Jesus does not pray that his disciples would be taken out of the world, but rather that God would protect them from the evil one. Now, this, I believe, should be understood as Satan. That while Satan was defeated at the cross, he's still given power to inflict terrible damage on the Lord's followers. And until the last day when the enemy is destroyed, Satan is given power over the world. This does not mean that we don't fight against him, that we're not called to cower from the enemy, but instead are to pray against his power in the name of Jesus, knowing that ultimately he is defeated. At the cross, some people think that Satan was overjoyed to see Jesus on the cross. That's not the case. We see several times where Satan tries to get Jesus to not go to the cross. We see this in his temptation uh, in the wilderness. We see this uh, whenever Peter comes to him and says, Oh Lord, you will not die. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So, But at the cross, Satan is given a fatal blow but he still will run through the earth and do everything he can to inflict pain and suffering on the Lord's people. But a day is coming when he will be cast into hell forever and ever, and God's enemy, our enemy, will be destroyed forever. But until that day, he remains. But we're not to cower in the corner and be afraid. We are to pray against Satan. We are to pray against his devices in the name of Jesus, knowing that at that name he is defeated. 
We have to remember the truth found in Scripture in Isaiah 54, 17. I've heard this verse used in a lot of bad ways. But no weapon that's formed against you shall succeed. In the end, Satan will be destroyed. Satan will lose. We can rest in this promise that no weapon that's formed against us will prosper. Because Christ has saved the disciples, their citizenship's no longer in this world that's been darkened by sin, just as Jesus' citizenship is of a greater heavenly country. Jesus does not pray that we would not suffer, but that we would be kept from moral corruption, by which Satan seeks to corrupt those who follow Jesus and draw them back under the sway and the power of sin. That's what Satan always does. He's always calling us to look back at our old life. He's always tempting us to go and to long for Sodom again. That's what Satan does. Satan does not make us sin. You choose to sin. But Satan tempts you with it. He says, look at this. It glitters. It sparkles. Remember how much you loved this? If God really loved you, he would give you this. That's what Satan does. That's what our hearts do. Jesus praying for our protection does not mean that he's okay with us sitting back and being alienated from our mission and responsibility just so we can feel safe. It means that Jesus is still calling us to live and work in a world that's hostile to us, but we do so under his love and his divine protection. D.A. Carson writes in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he says, The followers of Jesus are permitted neither the luxury of compromise with a world that is intrinsically evil and under the devil's power, nor the safety of disengagement. But if the Christian pilgrimage is inherently perilous, the safety that only God himself is assured, can provide is assured, as certainly as the prayers of God's own dear son will be answered. We are not promised that we will not suffer. Jesus never promises us that. But he promises us safety from the Father and that his prayers will be answered. The Father always answers the Son's prayers because he is delighted in the Son. This is the one in whom he is well pleased. And if we belong to the Son, then our prayers will be heard by the Father and his protection of us will be guaranteed. So we can go. We can charge the gates of hell. We can go and we can boldly proclaim the name of Jesus to those who have yet to hear. Our protection is guaranteed in the death of Jesus. We're protected because his blood has destroyed the power of the enemy and of sin. Jesus' cross is our protection from all evil. Satan wasn't rejoicing at Christ's death. He was cringing at his death. So Christian, why do you fear? Do you not have the power of heaven behind you? And protecting you? Why do you fear? Are you not duly held by the Father and by the Son? So let hell come against us. We're held in the hands of our great high priest, that there is no weapon that is formed against us that will prosper. We're duly held by the Father and the Son, and our high priest prays for us. He sacrificed himself for us. 
So what's the application for us? Well, first, because Jesus has prayed for our protection, the Christian's task is not to be withdrawn from the world. It's not to be confused by the world. But instead, he's to remain in the world. To be a witness to the truth of Jesus Christ by the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Christ doesn't want us just to live in this life, avoiding every evil thing that comes our way. We're not put here on earth to survive or simply just to get by. Jesus has left us here to live in his joy. So as we walk the Christian life, we walk under his divine protection, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of sorrow and suffering, We walk in Jesus' joy. So what is that joy? It's knowing that even though the world is falling apart around me, that Jesus is alive and that he's reigning on his throne. That there's nothing that overcomes him or surprises him. There's nothing that's going to dethrone him. He has defeated hell. He has defeated sin. He sits on his throne and he will reign on it forever whether hell comes against us, whether the world crumbles, that Jesus is reigning over his throne. No matter what happens at rolling fields, Jesus is reigning on his throne. And that should give you his joy. What is it? It's knowing that even though I don't know the future and that it scares me to death that Jesus has given me his peace And that this peace has overcome the world. It's knowing that what the enemy has destroyed, one day God will restore. It's knowing that even though I feel abandoned and forsaken, that God has promised never to leave me nor forsake me. It's knowing that even though I am walking through... It's knowing that even though... I am walking through what seems like the valley of the shadow of death, that he walks before me and he gives light to my path. And all of these things, I can endure them because he's given me his joy and his joy is rooted in him, not in my circumstances. It's rooted in him, that Jesus is the essence of joy. Jesus is the definition of joy. So as you go through all of these, and I'm sure all of us fall into one of these things I just said, Jesus is the essence of joy. Cling to him. Find your joy in him. Believe the truth that he has overcome the world. And he's given you his peace. Lastly, how does Jesus pray for us in light of living in the truth? Our high priest prays for us to be sanctified in truth by his sacrifice. Our high priest prays for us to be sanctified in truth by his sacrifice. Verses 17 through 19, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now verse 13 Jesus does not pray for the temporal well-being of his disciples, but he prays for their sanctification, that they would be set apart for God as holy. 
consecrated for their holy mission. He's setting them apart for the work that they're going to do very soon. Jesus asks for them to be sanctified in the truth, and then he says what that is, that the Father's word is truth. Truth is the means by which holiness is acquired. Truth is foundational to godly living. And then he says, your word is truth. So in its immediate context, it's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. But however, after the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit, this would also include the books of the New Testament. So the entire revelation of of scripture is God's true word. So if we want to understand what is truth, we look no further than the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. This is the truth. This is God's revealed truth to us. There is no other truth. If we want to know the heart of God, if we want to know the will of God, it is in the Word of God that this is absolute truth. And then in verse 18... Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, this passage aligns with John 20, 21, which is one of my favorite passages in all of John, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he appears several days later. He appears primarily to show Thomas that he was raised because, remember, Thomas doubted that Jesus was raised. And so we see that beautiful picture where uh, Thomas falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. But before this, Jesus commissions his disciples. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. Think about this. The missionary God sends his missionary son, to save sinners. And in turn, he calls us to be missionaries to a world that's living without hope and peace. How amazing is that? That our missionary God sends his son and we're running away from him. And he captures us with his love. He captures us with his grace. He saves us and then he calls us to go and to share that love, to share that missionary work with the world that is without hope. In in verse 18, we see that Jesus is the supreme pattern for Christian missions. That every Christian is sent into the world to bear witness to Jesus and to reach out to the lost wherever they may be found in order to lead them to the Savior. And then in verse 19, Jesus says, and for this reason, or for this For their sake, excuse me, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, Jesus says that he consecrates himself. Did he need to do that? Did he do something wrong? No, Jesus is not setting himself aside because of something unholy in himself, but in order uh, order to do a holy work for humanity. That Christ is sinless and did not need to be sanctified in the sense of putting off sin like we need to. Here, Jesus, as the high priest, he consecrates himself or he sets himself apart uh, to his sacred task, namely his sacrificial death. Jesus was totally set apart for the Father's will. He did that in order that believers might be set apart for God by the truth that he, that he brought. 
So Jesus sets himself aside. His entire life is one of consecration. He is setting himself aside for the cross to prepare for that sacred work, to prepare for the work of redemption. Jesus came to suffer and die. That was ultimately his purpose. He came to live according to the law, to fulfill the law on our behalf that God says we must fulfill or else we die. He came to do that, and then he came to die the death that we had to die. That was his purpose. There's lots of ideas floating around about what Jesus came to do. He just came to be this teacher. A good friend of mine uh, who is Jewish, who the Lord has in his grace given me a lot of opportunities to share the gospel with him, Him and I were on a trip out in the middle of nowhere, southwestern Indiana, a couple months ago. And he told me, and he's an interesting guy because he says that he, he loves Jesus, that he is just enthralled with Jesus. What's even crazy about the man is that he believes that Jesus was raised from the dead. He, he believes that. He believes that he ascended into heaven, but yet he's Jewish. He rejects Jesus as the Messiah. And so pray for this man as you're thinking about him, that God would reveal to him that Jesus is that Messiah that his people have been waiting for. But he said to me, he goes, Tyler, he goes, I finally figured out what Jesus' primary purpose was. He said, Jesus came to be a great social worker. He came just to alleviate suffering and speak up for those who, who cannot speak for themselves. He came to teach equality. Jesus was not a great social worker. Did Jesus speak up for the voiceless? Yes. Did Jesus care for the widow and the orphan and the dumb and the mute and the blind? Yes. Jesus came to go to the cross. Jesus came to suffer and die. Jesus came to be the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament. Jesus didn't come to be a great social worker. So remember, Jesus consecrated himself for the cross. See, we're sanctified in the truth because through the death of Jesus, we come to understand the truth about ourselves, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, and then we come to understand the truth about God, that only through the atoning death of Jesus can we find redemption. We're sanctified in the truth by the giving of the Holy Spirit as our guide into all truth. We see this in chapter 15, verse 13. It leads to sanctification as our hearts are exposed. As the truth of God's word opens up our hearts, it exposes who we really are. We're sanctified not by means of our own works, but by Jesus' sinless righteous work on our behalf. Your church attendance, your handing out bulletins, your singing on the worship team, even your evangelism, none of these things are enough. We're only sanctified by the righteous work of Jesus. We're sanctified by the truth in the blood of Jesus for the purpose of making him known. Jesus' prayer for us is to be sanctified in the truth because it's in the truth alone that shows us how to live godly lives and how to honor Jesus. We don't know how to honor Christ apart from the Word. How are you to know how to live if your nose is not in the Word? It's the Word that sanctifies us. It is the Word that exposes the heart, that leads to repentance, 
that leads to godly living. So it is the word of God that leads to godly living. Look, all other sacred texts fail. The Quran fails. The Verdes fail. The Book of Mormon fails. All other texts fail. That no truth is found apart from the word of God. That no philosophy or self-help book will ever guide you into holiness. That only the death of Jesus and the Spirit opening your eyes to the truth of the Word will ever lead you to sanctification and holiness. That everything else, it's just vain and empty efforts. It amounts to nothing before the Lord. That salvation comes only when our eyes are exposed to how broken and busted we are, and only as our eyes uh, are exposed to the glory of Christ and his cross can we come to faith. And that only happens through the word of God opening up your heart and exposing who you are and flooding you with the truth of God's word. So how do we apply this to our lives? First, Know that Jesus has set you free by his death and the truth of God's word. It opens up your heart and it shows you who you really are and then it shines the light of Christ to show you just how great, just how awesome he is. Now you're called to do the same, church. You're called to go and proclaim that freedom to a people who have yet to hear. We're not to sit on this truth. This truth is to change us. It's to stir our hearts and our affections. And it's to bubble over where we flood the world with this truth. As you walk through difficulties in life, ask God to take the word and wash you with it and to expose your heart. Ask God to show you where sin is still reigning and where you still need to set yourself apart for God and his glory. Don't think that once you come into Christ that you're still not sinful. But you are. Our old nature fights against the new nature. That's why we need the word of God to expose our hearts. That's why we need one another. That's why we need the church to say, brother, you're going down the wrong path. Sister, I see this in your life. And to use the word of God to proclaim truth to them. We regularly need to be fighting against sin. Christ, or next, Christian, know that you can grow in the truth. You can grow in it about yourself and about God because Jesus' death is the means to open your eyes to the truth. We regularly, in our life, we will never get to the end of understanding who God is. And so we must regularly be studying the word and asking the Lord to reveal the truth of his word to us and to apply it to our sinful hearts. So ask God to reveal more of who you are and more importantly to uh, who he is as you continue on the pilgrim's road. So in conclusion, Rolling Fields, my final words to you as your pastor is this. You cannot find security, protection, or sanctification from anything or anyone except in your great high priest. He's paid the ultimate price to call you to himself, so look to him. Rolling fields, as you embark on a journey that I'm sure is filled with uncertainty, and I'm sure many of you are filled with doubts, trust Jesus for the unknown. Trust Jesus to keep you, to protect you, to sanctify you, Trust him to love and care for you. Whatever valley you find yourself in, 
Know that He is your security, that He's your sanctification, that He's your joy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, You are good and Your mercy endures forever. Jesus, You are our great High Priest and it is Your delight and joy to pray on our behalf. It is Your delight and joy to protect us and keep us. And it was Your joy to go to the cross that Your Word says that You went to the cross, that You endured our shame, and that now You are seated at the right hand of the Father. And Father, as this church moves forward into Um, valleys and doubts and and questions and the unknown. God, I pray your presence upon them. God, I pray your protection and your grace. God, I pray that Rolling Fields would know that this morning, that every morning, the tomb is empty, Jesus has been raised, and that he is seated on his throne, that he is reigning over the church, and that he loves her, that he will protect her. And God, I pray for these people. They would find their joy. They would find their satisfaction in Jesus and in him alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Please stand as we sing this last song.